China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS. And this week, I'm joined by Roger Kramers, Assistant Professor in the Law and Governance of China at the University of Leiden. Today, we'll be discussing law and ideology in China. Roger, thanks for joining the podcast. Great to be here. Thanks for the invite. So I wanted to start out today, as I do with most guests, which is to ask you for a, a short intellectual biography. How did you become interested in your current set of research endeavors? And as a follow-up, what are the big outstanding questions that you have in your mind about China's political system or legal system that, that drive your continued work? Well, Jude, at the moment, I'm doing most of my work on China's digital society. In other words, how does the Communist Party of China use technology to govern but also what does that mean for its participation in the global digital landscape? And it would be very attractive to say that, you know, this was the master plan for over a decade. But in reality, I'm more of an academic mongrel. You know, my classical origin story is that I grew up in a small town in Belgium and I wanted to see the world. So I decided I might as well go and study China studies, which I did. And I came for the language and the culture and the literature and the history. And then after I graduated, I got a scholarship to spend a year at Peking University, where I discovered that the China of the present is as interesting, if not more interesting, than the China of the past. So after I went back home, I did a degree in international relations to look a little bit more at China's position in the world. Turns out it wasn't really easy to get a job with that profile uh, in Belgium back then. So I started teaching Chinese language in evening classes. And I had a lucky break. One of my students turned out to be a professor at Maastricht University in the Netherlands, a professor of intellectual property law, who offered me a PhD position. And so I did a PhD on intellectual property in China, focusing on copyright and how that relates to media and free speech issues, and how that sometimes conflicts with the requirements of the WTO. And when I'd done that, this was around the time of the financial crisis, so there weren't a lot of jobs going around, but there was a job at Oxford University on Chinese media law, which I applied for and I got, and I ended up spending five years at Oxford, where I started out working on media law. This was around 2011, where it became pretty clear that you couldn't st seriously study media in China without looking at the internet. And studying the internet, it very rapidly became clear that the internet and digital technology more broadly is far, far more than just media, you know, the communication of, of information. It is about economic questions, political questions, security questions. And that really tapped into sort of one of my overarching interests, which is the basic question of how do people organize themselves? How do people build systems to get them through life socially, politically, economically? And technology in China provides an incredibly interesting and useful window to do that. But at the same time, as I'm sure you'll know, law is obviously a very normative field. It comes with a lot of should statements. And one of the things I equally noticed there was that there is an incredible amount of scholarship and analysis written about law in China, but very often coming from Western assumptions, either theoretically, this is what a legal system is, or normatively, this is what China's legal system should become. And what I very often found got a little bit lost was this notion of, you know, and this is where the classically trained sonologist in me comes up, is 
what is actually, is there such a thing as a Chinese conception of law, a Chinese conception of ways of ordering society in which elements that we would recognize as being associated with the legal system could be a part of? And so I've, I've really dedicated a fair bit of my work to getting in that angle. Right. What is it that the Chinese government is trying to accomplish here? How does it look at the world? How does it look at its challenges? How does it conceive of, you know, even something as basic as human nature and social nature? And how does it work on that basis? And that is a absolutely perfect segue, Roger, to the bulk of our discussion here, which is looking at the role of ideology. And we're going to talk a bit more about what precisely we mean by ideology, but the role of ideology and law in China under the Communist Party. And I should say that we're drawing our discussion today from one of your contributions to a volume which you co-edited, which is forthcoming from Cambridge University Press, which is called Law and the Party in China, Ideology and Organization. I just wanted to pause for a moment and ask you if you can just tell us a, a little bit about the book. What is the focus of it beyond the title? And what are some of the takeaways for you from that volume? The book, and I must take a moment here to thank, for starters, my wonderful co-editor, Sutra Vasquez, who's been a major, major influence on my thinking in this, as well as the wonderful contributors that we have uh, of all the chapters. It starts essentially from a moment where Sue and I were after a conference in Hong Kong, sitting on a terrace, having a drink and talking a little bit through essentially what, what I've just been outlining, that there, there seems to be a major stream of studies of Chinese law that start from uh, Western presumptions or, or indeed Western interests. For instance, a lot of American legal scholarship about Chinese law looks at courts. And that's a very normal thing for an American lawyer to do because courts play an incredibly important role in the American legal system. And it almost seems like you get a bit of projection there that therefore courts must be equally important or can be equally important in legal reform in China. And that's an assumption that isn't necessarily true. And so we started talking about, wouldn't it be wonderful to have a book that really tries to make that explicit and tries to point people at you know, those things that are indigenously Chinese, not in the sense of some cultural essentialist term, but more in the sense of, you know, how does the PRC actually work? And what is it that we need for that? And the subtitle, Ideology and Organization, is a very big wink to an influential book that came out in the 1960s by Sherman about ideology and organization in China, where the key argument is, you know, the party governs China through ideology and organization. And these two ideas ideology on the one hand, but, but also how do you organize a state? How do you organize its institutions and processes were things that often got a little bit snowed under in this field of Chinese law. And with this book, that's what we then really try to focus on. So instead of saying, this is what we as Western scholars think law is or should be, and we're going to project these definitions onto China, we really wanted to sort of take a slightly different view and go, what are actually the ingredients of this Chinese legal system that we might not naturally look at immediately? And it's been wonderful going through this process. We have contributions that are sort of more towards the intellectual side, for instance, about how the rule of law is defined, but equally on all of these new legal frameworks or, or semi-legal frameworks that are being set up, such as the supervision committee, such as intra-party 
regulations such as the social credit system, how that, does that actually tie into the Chinese legal system and therefore enrich our understanding of how this system actually operates? And of course, the particular slice that you looked at in your contribution to the book, which, which we'll dig into today, is entitled Party Ideology and Chinese Law. And I would just highly recommend this. I, I had the chance to read it fully last night. It's much more than a, a narrow discussion on Chinese law. I mean, the first few pages are really fantastic overview of, of many of the what we got wrongs in thinking about ideology before going into an analysis of how that instantiates itself in the practice of Chinese law. But I want to make sure we, we cover our baseline here, which is, as we were talking about before we click record, ideology is one of these muddled words where if you were to line up 10 people and ask them to define ideology, you may get 14 different answers. And so I wanted to ask, how are you using this word in the chapter, and I want to follow up with that because I suspect your definition, which I think is much more helpful, definitions which deviate from that and the fact that we don't have an overlapping definition may, in many important ways, explain why we're, we're seeing a, a discussion about you know, ideology, quote, returning under Xi Jinping, or as one Chinese scholar put it, you know, on, on the eve of Xi Jinping's accession of power, that China had become a, quote, post-ideological State. And of course, under your definition, that, that just doesn't make sense. So to you, what is ideology? Let me just start by going a little bit through what I was responding to and say what ideology is not. Very often, particularly where it comes to China, it seems to me that we use ideology as a sort of antonym of rationality, right? Ideology comes with all kinds of connotations of people who are irrational, interested only in their own mental castles, driven by extremist ideas or extremist notions. Ideology tends to come with a bit of a whiff. It's very often not used as, as a positive word. But what I try to do in the book is sort of take this notion of ideology in a slightly different tack where the British scholar Michael Frieden came up with this really useful definition, which I borrowed. And that is that ideologies are somewhat coherent complexes of ideas, assumptions, values that together give, on the one hand, an explanation about why the world is the way that it is, and on the other hand, give you a recipe for political change. So ideology is both intellectual and action-oriented. It is both about understanding but also about affecting change, affecting reform, right? rebuilding the world in the image of, of your ideology. And in that sense, clearly the Communist Party has an ideology. It spends an extraordinary amount of money every year to meticulously manicure its ideology. It's got a central propaganda department, it's got party schools, and so on and so forth. But that is, you know, from the analytical perspective, no different from, say, someone who holds a strong free market ideology in the sense that the belief that markets should be free and will be efficient and generate the most welfare is equally an ideology under, under my definition. Ideologies are essentially ways for us with our very limited brains and cognitive capacities to live in a world that is far more complex, unpredictable and uncontrollable than we can comprehend. Yeah, and you make the good point here that, of course, using this definition of ideology, 
we see that it, i.e. ideology, is a, quote, crucial part of any political structure or practice. And of course, I think this was one of the elements that always frustrated me about narratives of the Dung era was that Dung had essentially said, look, we're done with ideology. We're now just going to focus on hard economic developmentalism. And as I think you're rightfully saying here, that is an ideology. Ideology isn't just something that socialists, neoliberalism is certainly an ideology. And there's another sentence I want to ask if you can just dwell on a bit here, because I found it both obvious to me, but also profound in the sense that it is so often forgotten. You say, for its part, the CCP has consistently been explicit about the prominence it attaches to ideological affairs. It is in its near century of existence, the party has meticulously built up and continuously revised a sophisticated ideological edifice that is contained within its foundational documents, such as the CCP constitution and the state constitution. I wanted to ask you in a practical sense, if a Martian came down to contemporary China and was casting about where and how would it see this ideology reinforced? You, you gave away part of this is you just said it's in foundational documents of the CCP constitution. But if I'm a Martian visiting China, where do I go to see the importance of ideology? Well, I'm not sure I can give you the Martian perspective, but I can give you the Belgian perspective of someone who uh, essentially at some point decided to map out a large slice of a Chinese policy area, which started out with intellectual property law and then turned into media and technology and all that. And this is a point where you start to understand that ideology is a little bit like water, at least from the perspective of the fish. It is everywhere. So I started out by looking at all kinds of documents, legal documents, regulatory documents, policy speeches. Now, every big policy document, for instance, starts always with a section on the guiding ideology of that document. And some of that are the usual sort of must-have must ticked boxes. We will follow the spirit of the 19th Party Congress and you know, the, the important thought of Xi Jinping on socialism with Chinese characteristics in a new era, right? All of the boilerplate stuff. Simply the fact that it's there already tells you something. But more broadly, what you will find is sort of little snippets of texts in all of these documents that certainly to a Western trained observer would spike your interest. One element of Chinese party ideology, for instance, that I go into is that in policy documents, you will very often find that we must build out this program or implement this strategy through discovering and abiding by the laws, the guilu of this area. And with law, we don't mean a piece of legislation. We mean something like a scientific law, like, you know, the law of gravity. And this is really interesting because you would never really find that in an American or a European political document. And that really pushed me to sort of go into a little bit more on what does this actually mean? And there's a really interesting and useful corpus of literature, for instance, on how the Chinese Communist Party perceives science. And trained sinologists will immediately think about Mr. Science in the 20s and the 30s. That's something that's really important. The Chinese government sees governing as a scientific pursuit. Rightly or wrongly, that's not my position to judge. But it does mean that you are going to get a different way, a different approach of governing, of perceiving the task of governing, than you would in a system where you don't necessarily see governing as implementing 
the precepts of a body of science, but say, reflecting the popular will, as you know, one would expect in a democracy. That's a fairly big thing. And obviously, where you then end up within the Chinese policy landscape is at the top. What I very often do with my law students when I'm teaching them Chinese constitutional law, you know, the week before, I'll send them the text of the document in class. I'll ask them who's read it. And then most of them will have read the body of the constitution, starting with Article 1. And obviously, from a legal perspective, you know, that's what any European or American trained lawyer would do. But it just happens to be the case that before Article 1, you get a couple of pages of preamble, which are routinely ignored by law students. But if you are a China scholar, they are really, really important because they set the context within which the constitution is going to operate. And it contains a political program. But more than anything else, it contains a historical overview. Why is that? Because the Communist Party are Marxists. And Marxism, more than anything else, is a theory of history. If you're a Marxist, the first thing you need to do is situate yourself in the ladder of historical development as laid down by Marx. That's where you will find it. In the constitution of the Communist Party, so not the state constitution, but the party constitution, you will still find ideas like you know, the achievement of communism is the ultimate goal of the Communist Party of China. And that word communism has been substituted or joined by a couple of other words, you know, the harmonious society, the great rejuvenation, the Chinese dream. But this notion of working towards an idealized goal, right? A future state where there will be no more tension, right? Harmony is essentially the absence of social conflict, of social contradiction. You know, that's a very, very powerful notion. If I can interject for just a second, one of the challenges I have in thinking through the role that ideology plays, and I think connecting this back to your the sentence I quoted of the CCP consistently being explicit, how then if we think of ideology in the Communist Party as being somewhat coherent, how is it that we explain how the behavior of the Communist Party over this hundred years has undergone some pretty wild swings. It's one of the questions I had for my previous guest, Dan Tobin, who stressed the importance of thinking about foundational party ideology. And that, that makes sense to me, but it does seem that that ideological worldview doesn't dictate, or at least allows a significant amount of room for the party to reinterpret what the heck it wants to do with that body of ideas and I think that's what feeds into this idea that party ideology is really just performative and that they can do whatever the heck they want and then post hoc justify it. And just to put a more pointed question to you, we've seen from 1976 to the present, we've seen kind of the end of the Cultural Revolution, still basing everything off Marxism-Leninism. We saw Deng in the economic reform, still basing everything off, off of Marxism-Leninism. We saw the, the period of, of the last decade of Hu Jintao still basing everything off Marxism-Leninism, and now we've got Xi Jinping. So if we have a relatively fixed Marxist-Leninist point on our compass, well, why the heck is their behavior so, so different over the course of this 40 plus years? That's a very, very good question. And I think one of the, the ways that we can address it is by looking at, you know, Chinese party ideology is on the one hand, very constant and on the other hand, can be extremely flexible and adaptive. If Mao were to 
come alive today and he would walk out of his, uh, his tomb on Tiananmen Square, he'd look around, he wouldn't recognize the city of Beijing as he last left it in 1976. But if he were to walk into Zhongnanhai, he probably would recognize the nature and the functioning of the party a lot more. One of the things we very often do, for some reason, us Western scholars tend to have a misguided focus on, on regime type to the extent that we very often overlook the particularities of regimes, is we say, essentially, Chinese communism or socialism is a sort of slightly evolved 2.0 version of USSR communism. But I think there are some real and important differences there. The USSR seemed historically to have been far more closely wedded to its economic form of operation than the Chinese Communist Party ever was. Right? Don't forget, Deng Xiaoping starts reforming at the end of the 70s, which is over a decade before the Berlin Wall comes down. And something really interesting happens. I think that Dengist moment is a really interesting sort of example of both constancy and flexibility at work. The teleology of the Chinese Communist Party has always been, and there's obviously that wonderful book by Shell and Delory, to achieve wealth and strength, or to re-achieve wealth and strength for China as a nation. And therefore, anything that the Communist Party does is, in essence, defined in that light, evaluated in that light. Is what we're currently doing making us wealthier and stronger? If no, we need to get rid of it. And so when Mao dies, Deng Xiaoping, who's one of the very few Chinese leaders at that point in time to have traveled to the West, remember he gave China's big speech at Beijing taking over the Taipei seat in the United Nations. He looks around and he goes, wait a minute, these people are doing something right here. We are far poorer than these Americans seem to be and later on these Japanese seem to be. So someone like Deng would have been very much seized of the notion that we're not going to achieve wealth and strength if we keep on doing what we're doing. Now, the notion of party ideology as it is based on Marxism-Leninism is that truth comes from an external corpus of knowledge, right? This idea that we're, we're dealing with a scientific program here. And throughout the Mao era, that corpus was essentially whatever Mao said. So policy was very often informed or had to be justified or conceived or developed in the light of whatever it was that Mao had for breakfast that day, to put it a little bit disrespectfully, but perhaps not completely untruthfully. And Deng Xiaoping does something really interesting. He says, clearly our political structure is strong. Look at what we've just been doing to ourselves for the last decade. The party is still standing. There is still no serious competitor to power. So that is something we need to reinforce. Economically, we need to do stuff differently. So you keep the goal the same, right? We want to achieve wealth and strength. You keep the political institution largely the same. The Communist Party in China looks a lot like it did in the late 70s. But what you do is you leave behind a Maoist notion of a planned economy, which clearly hasn't worked. And Deng Xiaoping does something really interesting. He says, actually, we don't know how to run an economy, so we have to discover it. We have to try things out. And, you know, this is where I think a whole swathe of that non-ideological, post-ideological thinking comes from. It's a sense that we're no longer going to base our economic policy decisions on the exegesis of Maoist dicta. What we are going to do is we're going to try things out and see if they work. 
very much like a scientist in a laboratory would do experiments to see what works and what doesn't. So you maintain the assumption that you're dealing with a scientific program here, but you shift the basis of knowledge. You shift the basis of truth, right? Seeking, seeking truth from facts. And this is really where the party does something interesting. It starts calling itself a learning party. In, in Chinese. So it is a party that says, you know, in the same way that John F. Kennedy would have said in, uh, in 1961, we're going to the moon by the end of this decade. We don't know how we're going to do it, but we are going to discover it and we actually have ways of doing so. That's why we have science and engineers for. And Deng Xiaoping does something really similar where it comes, for instance, to economic policy. And this is something I think that from the West, we would then see as less ideological because it is closer to, or, or it seems closer on the surface to how we would run an economy. And so this is where you then get the whole sort of China is going to become like us. China wants to become like us, which, which I think is, is a misinterpretation of that notion. That is really what you get at that moment. It's, it's, it's a party that isn't wedded to a particular form of running an economy, but that is wedded to a particular goal and will be flexible in trying to achieve that goal. I noticed that I made you spend far too long in ideology that we haven't gotten to the other, the meat of your article. So I wonder if we could just spend the last few minutes now taking this background of the importance and role of ideology to the Communist Party and grafting this over or grafting this onto how the party thinks about and utilizes the law. One of the things that strikes me, and of course this is the case with almost all authoritarian or even totalitarian systems is, they don't do away with the fiction of the importance of the law. China, for example, if, if we use the alien or the Belgian being dropped down, would notice many of the institutions, organizations, structures of a rule of law system, that would look very similar from 20 feet away to what you would find in Belgium or the United States. I don't know about Mars. So I guess as a first kind of level setting question, why does the Communist Party invest so much in the appearance of a law-based system? Whether that's we have a National People's Community Standing Committee, which I guess in theory would have the ability to strike down some laws because they're not constitutional, but has never, so far as I know, why go through the motions on this? Well, there's a really interesting idea in development studies that is called isomorphic mimicry. And the idea is that developing countries will essentially take developed countries as examples and import particular forms of political, economic, and social organization that developed countries have in order to themselves develop. So, you know, say you're down on your luck in the dating scene, you have a friend who is very successful on the dating scene and they're, they're always wearing a particular brand of clothing, you're going to also buy that brand of clothing in order to raise your hopes of success. You know, it's, it's, it's something like that. There's actually a really interesting vignette in 1954 where Mao and Stalin are apparently having a conversation. This is the point in time where, where China is working on its first constitution. And Mao is actually not quite sure why he needs it. And Stalin tells him, it's the sort of thing you have when you're a modern country and for you know people to take you seriously, both at home and abroad. 
So there seems to be a very strong developmental element of that, right? To be a modern developed state is keeping up with the Joneses, and it means having these things X, Y, and Z, as you say. Partially, they are also a consequence of, you know, that, that very interesting and sometimes understudied period at the beginning of the People's Republic where, you know, the standard narrative is the Chinese Communist Party takes over the country in 1949 and it's Maoism ever since. And there's actually some really interesting political wrangling that takes place within that first decade of the PRC where, you know, you're going to have to bring people on board. You're going to have to make coalitions for the time being and you set up bodies in order to get some buy-in from people who are not necessarily immediately on your side. For instance, this is why we still have the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference. And they still have value, right? The CPPCC is now a really great place to put tech entrepreneurs. You will see a lot of company founders in the CPPCC, and it gives them a stake in the system, right? Not quite what was envisaged in 1949, but a really useful function nonetheless. But I do think that very often I find that we want to impute some sort of deviousness or some sort of false consciousness where it comes to the Communist Party and governance, right? Where we want to say pretty much everything it does is purely performative. It's all just for show. And in the end, it's, it's only about the, the brutal exercise of power. And I don't necessarily think that that is the case. It's also about managing complexity. By now, the Communist Party of China has more people in it than there are Germans in Germany, right? This is a phenomenally complex organization. And for all that we talk about, you know, Xi Jinping won this, Xi Jinping is going to do that, Xi Jinping decides, there's 90 million other people in the Communist Party of China who somehow have to be governed, who have to be kept in line but who also need to be convinced that this is an organization that is working well. This is an organization in which they have a voice, in which they have a stake, of which they have some ownership. Um, more broadly, this is obviously true with regard to society as well. There's one big thing Jung Nanahai learned after the events of 1989. It is that coercion is a really expensive way of governing, right? It's, it's bad for business. So you, in essence, you want to build a state in which most people are fairly satisfied with the way things are going. And law can be a really useful way of, of doing that. And now I wonder if we can bring these kind of two together. And by the way, I think that was a really important point and, and I appreciate the clarification. I realize I just lapsed into a lazy observer there where I just assume that, it, that it's all performative, but you're right. I think there's also an important coordinative and governance perspective of the institutions that the party uses. I wanted to ask if we can now bring these two together and think about where this system of ideas, this relatively coherent system of ideas that is the party's ideology, which you rightfully, I think, say in the piece, maybe another way to think about this is a set of values that the party holds about the way that China should be organized and the goals that it hopes to achieve, which, of course, is a moral vision as much as anything. How does this influence the way that China utilizes, administers the law here? And I realize we could have a whole discussion just on what law is and, and what, you know, in Chinese, they sound the same, but fajr versus fajr, rule of law versus rule by law. But for the sake of brevity, we'll have to push that discussion off. But just want 
folks to come away now with an idea of how does this kind of this ideological outlook on the world or how the role China should play or where the Communist Party should take the country, where does the rubber meet the road in terms of how this influences what law looks like and is administered in China? That's a really interesting point. But if I might just make a small sidestep first, you brought in a really interesting point about sort of morality and values. And I think one thing that we very often uh, fail to register is that when we're dealing with the Chinese legal or political system, we're dealing with a political legal system that has a very interesting difference from our own, which is that all of our Western, you know, European origin political legal systems developed for the last two millennia in a framework where state and religion operated next to each other. You had institutionalized churches and institutionalized states. And obviously, at some point, they merge a little bit. There is some overlap, but they are functionally different, right? The wonderful line in the Bible, uh, give unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar, give unto God what belongs to God. This never happens in China, right? The emperor combines always moral authority and worldly authority, and the Communist Party still does the same. And that really gives a very interesting tinge to a legal system, which addresses moral issues in a way that our legal systems don't. I think you could conceivably argue that given the fact of secularization in Western societies, legal systems now have to bear more of a moral burden than they did, say, 50 years ago or 100 years ago. And I think there's an argument to be made that that, for a certain extent, causes the difficulties with judicial politicization that we now see around the world. But that just to highlight the contrast with the Chinese reality where, you know, you have these functions of a church and a state combined, and you see this reflected in law. You see this partly reflected in sort of really, you know, things that we sometimes find slightly ridiculous, such as the legal exhortation that children should visit their aged parents sufficiently. Why are they on about and so on and so forth. But we also see it more broadly in terms of the notion that the Chinese Communist Party seems to have, where it isn't just about governing in a way that is legal. It is also about governing in a way that enhances the good life. It's not for nothing that we have a commission on spiritual civilization. It's not for nothing that we have a core socialist value system. And it's obviously going to be clear that these are going to be introduced into the legal system. Another thing that I'd like to point to, and this is really where, you know, our expectations of legal systems and party ideology sort of make for a very interesting cocktail, is we very often see law as one singular whole, one singular entity, right? You go to law school and you get it all. You get criminal law, you get public law, private law, contract law, intellectual property, you name it. But when it comes to China, I think it would be a really useful idea to try and prize these apart somehow. What I do in the chapter is I talk a little about, about the spheres of law, where you will find that the Chinese state has allowed what a Western observer would call legal rationality to come into being in different ways, depending on what you're dealing with. So if you are, say, a contract lawyer, particularly European contract lawyer, because Chinese contract law borrows more than a fair bit from European contract law systems, you know, these, these systems look really alike. And if you are confronted with contract law cases in Chinese courts on a daily basis, you know, you're not going to be out of your depth. And that is because under the ideology, 
you know, China has adopted to a very significant degree notions of free markets. In a free market, you're going to organize things with contracts. You know, you're going to have to have a legal system that somehow deals with what happens if you break a contract, what happens if you're no longer in the possibility to fulfill a contract. And this is all sort of fairly basic organizational stuff that the Chinese government has just taken over. So if you're a contract lawyer, you're obviously dealing with a country that is still developing, albeit developing rapidly, and you need to account for that. But it's not a million miles away from what you would recognize. When you're a public lawyer, on the other hand, and you're dealing with constitutional issues, you simply have to account for the fact that where our countries are legal creatures, they have been created by a law, that that isn't the case with China. Our constitutional states are built on the basis of documents that, you know, at some point groups of people sat down to write. And this is a tradition that goes back to Renaissance European notions of public law in order to navigate the prerogatives of first the church and the state and then the different bits of the state where you had kings, emerging parliaments, aristocracy, and so on and so forth. China's evolution is different. And certainly the Communist Party of China took power through an armed revolution, right? This wasn't a group of people from different backgrounds sitting together and hashing out a compromise. This was an armed takeover by a highly organized political organization. And so where you have a sphere of legality in the realm of contract, that's completely different when you're dealing with public affairs. You have spheres of legality inside criminal law, right, dealing with, say, murder and theft and uh, physical violence, but you clearly also have political elements which are that political sphere which allows you to conveniently send dissidents to prison or people uh, like Bo Xilai. And all of that you then have to see in that context of the teleology. The task of the Chinese government is not to fulfill the law. Rather, it is to use the law as a tool to achieve the stated objective of wealth and power. But the complexity of achieving that goal requires coordination. And that's, I think, an, an impossible tension, one that not just the Chinese government has to navigate every day, but every legal system is faced with irreconcilable differences that can only be managed and navigated and never solved. We just some really fantastic thoughts there. And you put very nicely an explanation of the role of teleology that is helpful to me, as I was telling you before we hit record, in my simplified version, I'd always described it as the, the Communist Party is a bit like a like a shark. It has to keep moving forward through the water to have oxygen uh, over its gills. And, and, and that's also why I've always thought that the party has this extraordinarily complex web of forward-looking plans and guidance for the system, that the system is not what um, what Michael Oakeshott used to call the nomocracy. Just it, it's about governing, as you say, I think quite nicely, about governing the present. It's often uh, forward-looking. Anyway, Roger, I, I, of course, as I should have known and expected, we got to about 4% of what I wanted to uh, get through with you, but, but such is the richness of your analysis and the material and the questions before us. I want to recommend that folks who are more interested in ideology, in the way that the Communist Party thinks about law, not only go read Roger's fantastic chapter, Party Ideology in Chinese Law, but the entire book, Law and the Party in China, Ideology and Organization. But as you can see, you know, Roger's work here informs not just 
this narrower slice of China's legal system, but really how the party organizes, how it views the world, and this incredibly important topic of, of teleology and the party as pursuing an end state that it hopes to bring about and taking some of these ideological pronouncements serious. So anyway, Roger, really want to thank you. Thank you for time. And thank you for sharing this really fantastic work. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog.